You're listening to Killer. This is case number 17, The Golden State Killer, Part 8, The East Area Rapist, Part 7. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. May 29th, 1977, The East Area Rapist hits south, victim 24. The mass rapist who has terrorized Sacramento County and county neighborhoods for the past 19 months struck for the 24th time early Saturday morning, and for the first time, his attack occurred outside of the east residential area. The rape occurred inside a single-story home in the Sky Parkway area in the southern residential portion of the county. Sky Parkway is located east of Highway 99 and north of Florin Road. All previous attacks have been north of Folsom Boulevard and east of Howe Avenue. Sheriff's spokesman, Bill Miller, said the rapist entered the house during the early morning hours after forcing his way through a sliding glass door. He then made his way into a bedroom where his 28-year-old victim and her husband were sleeping. The intruder forced the woman to tie up her husband, and then he took her into another room where the rape was committed. The couple's young child was asleep in a separate room and did not awaken until after the rapist left the home shortly after 4 a.m. The couple told deputies that the man was in the home for at least one and a half hours. The rapist wore a ski mask and brandished a gun. June 1, 1977. Hatred of rapist. Armed women attend gun class. The news that the East Area Rapist had claimed his 24th victim was spreading as the class gathered at the McClellan Sportsman's Association. About 45 women and a few men had come to learn to use a gun. Some came out of curiosity, but more of fear and hatred of the rapist. I'm going to learn to defend myself, said a determined young woman as she clutched a steel-cold Smith & Wesson revolver in her right hand. I'm getting tired of being scared all of the time. Another woman, sitting in the crowded makeshift classroom, confided that she had a brand new 38 caliber snub-nosed revolver stashed in her purse. She hadn't even taken it out of the box yet, but I wouldn't hesitate to use it, she said. From her handbag, she pulled a folded X-covered map she had clipped from the newspaper showing places the rapist had struck. See, she said pointing to a location surrounded by X's, I live right here. Many of the women, some the owners of shiny new pistols, others thinking about buying one, are among a rising number learning the basics at area gun classes. The McClellan Sportsman's Association's nine-year-old course has grown over the past month from an average of 30 members per class to almost 60. June 8, 1977. New Women's Group. Full Rapist Data Requested. A newly formed coalition of women concerned about the rape epidemic in Sacramento County asked the Board of Supervisors today to direct Sheriff Dwayne Lowe to disclose complete information about rapists attacking women in the county. In a letter to the board, members of the coalition said complete accurate information about rapists is the only way to combat the rumors and widespread panic that has turned homes and the area into many arsenals and caused frightened women to become isolated individuals. The coalition, called Sacramento Women Against Rape, also asked the county to establish a 911 extension telephone system for emergency calls to the police, expanding funding for the Sacramento Rape Crisis Center, and designate the week of July 4th as Rape Awareness Week. The East Area Rapist has focused public attention on the rape crisis, but this criminal is the only one of many rapists now loose on the streets, said Barbara Ward, a member of the coalition and the Women's Center. She said an estimated eight rapes a day are occurring in the area. Police, however, said reported rapes in Sacramento County average one a day. During a press conference on the steps of the Sacramento County Courthouse, an East Area resident and a member of the coalition, Lisa Spear, said the sheriff's department and police would be performing a public service to release more detailed information about rapes and rapists. Clearly, the East Area rapist is a threat to the entire community, she said. 
Women especially must learn to protect themselves, and we need better information to do this. We want to know when and where rapes occur so we can better look after ourselves. Sheriff's spokesman Bill Miller responded, We have kept the public informed. All information that has been beneficial to the protection of the public has been released. We're not following a suppressive policy. He added, I'm not going to comment any further on the new coalition or anything at the Women's Center. The Eastery Rapist, an armed man who breaks into homes to rape women and terrorize families, has attacked 24 times in the past 19 months. His attacks have recently increased in frequency and boldness. In a related development today, Sacramento Police announced a beefed-up squad will concentrate on the search for the East Area Rapist. Two of his 24 attacks have occurred in city police jurisdiction, the others in the sheriff's territory. The city assigned seven investigators and two patrol teams to the task force, which is headed by Lt. Hal Taylor, commander of the robbery detail. Special police phone lines for the task force were set at 442-9892 and 442-8983. The Sacramento Women Against Rape asked the Board of Supervisors to make Sacramento County the first county in California to establish the 911 emergency telephone system. The state last year imposed an emergency telephone tax to raise money to reimburse local governments for such systems. The coalition also asked the board to appropriate enough money to keep the Rape Crisis Center operating at full capacity. The county last month allocated $11,800 of the center's $24,000 request to keep it going until September. During the proposed Rape Awareness Week, members of the coalition plan to canvass the area to disseminate information telling women how to prevent rapes, said Karen Anderson, a member of the coalition and women in politics. June 17, 1977. No news gag on rapist attacks. Confronted by recent criticism of the sheriff's handling of information about the East Area Rapist, Sacramento County Sheriff Spokesman Bill Miller said Thursday he has told news media of all the rapist attacks and will continue to do so. It's our policy to release the information to the media each time this guy strikes, Miller told the Sacramento Public Relations Roundtable as he accepted its Public Relations Professional of the Year Award. But the sheriff's staff will continue to deny general interviews about the rapist and the attacks which have outraged the eastern section of the county, Miller said. That policy was set because reporters asking about the rapes were disrupting the sheriff's office, he said. The office was beginning to look like an NBC production studio. August 17, 1977. Police certain East Area Rapist struck in Stockton. Police here are certain a sexual assault on a 27-year-old North Stockton housewife was committed by Sacramento's notorious East Area Rapist. We tried to convince ourselves it was somebody else, but there's just no way to do it. It's him, said Stockton Police Sergeant Andrew E. Jackson. Tuesday, after an extensive conference with four detectives from Sacramento, Sergeant Jackson said the method of operation employed to the Stockton rape early Tuesday was identical to that attributed to the East Area Rapist and added details of the sexual assault itself leave absolutely no doubt that it was the same man who has assaulted 22 to 24 women in Sacramento County. Sacramento authorities were non-committal. Sheriff spokesman Bill Miller confirmed that two detectives from his department were dispatched to Stockton but refused to discuss the outcome. Acting Chief of Police Jerry Finney acknowledged that two city detectives went to Stockton Tuesday to investigate rapes similar to those in Sacramento, but said that he would not comment on a crime committed in another jurisdiction. Sergeant Jackson said the women and her husband, asleep in their upper-middle-class Lincoln Village West home, were awakened at about 1.30 a.m. Tuesday by an intruder who had entered through a sliding glass door, separating the master bedroom from the pool area in the backyard. The man was described as 5'9 to 5'11 and wearing a ski-type mask. He blinded the couple with a light. October 3, 1977. Police believe rapists is toying with them. 
Detectives in Sacramento and Stockton today speculated the East Area Rapist may have returned to his familiar part of Sacramento County Saturday because he felt the concentrated manhunt for him there was easing. The sexual terrorist may have thought his September 6th attack in Stockton slowed the police and citizen pressure in Sacramento County, said Bill Miller, a spokesman for the sheriff. That pressure, which peaked in May, involved increased police patrols, an intensive effort by teams of detectives, heavy gun sales, citizen patrols, record lock sales, and installation of strong lights and other security devices, Miller noted. Such awareness and concern about the rapist who in 19 months attacked 21 times in the East Area and once in the South Area may have propelled him to Stockton in an attempt to dilute the efforts here, Miller said. Some veteran detectives think the rapist was playing games with the police when he ventured out of the East Area to attack a sleeping couple in the Sky Parkway section of the South Area, May 28th, ceased his strikes for more than three months, then hit in Stockton. He's playing with us. There's no doubt about that, Stockton Police Sergeant Andrew E. Jackson said today. But anything about him is pure speculation. You try to build a theory about this guy, and he just blows it apart. The only consistent thing about him is that he is inconsistent. Jackson said the beefed-up police patrols in Stockton will continue, even if the rapist has hit in Sacramento County again. In more than three weeks of intensive investigation, Stockton police were unable to learn much about the rapist that could lead them to a suspect, Jackson said. In the Saturday attack on a 17-year-old girl visiting her boyfriend in the La Riviera Folsom Boulevard area, the rapist followed his pattern of overpowering the couple in the bedroom, restricting the man with bonds, and leading the girl into another part of the home for repeated attacks. Attack number 34, June 5, 1978, in the city of Modesto on Fuchsia Lane. A tapping noise echoed throughout the bedroom of the soon-to-be victims as they lay in their bed fast asleep. They stirred awake and noticed a bright beam shining in their faces, the silhouette of a man standing in the doorway, still tapping on the doorframe. Wake up, motherfuckers. Get on your stomachs and put your hands behind your backs. I've got a three fifty-seven Magnum, and if you flinch, I'll blow your fucking brains out. The East Area Rapist ordered the woman to tie her husband and to make sure it was tight. The woman complied. Next, he ordered the woman onto her stomach, and he bound her wrists and ankles, eventually binding the husband even tighter as to be sure there was no funny business. Don't flinch. All I want is your money and food to put in my van and I'll leave. He left the room for a few moments, rummaging through the home. Finally, he returned to the room. One move and there's going to be two dead people, he hissed through clenched teeth. He cut the shoelaces with a knife and pushed it into the woman's back, ordering her to the living room. As the woman stood up, he stopped, walked over to the man still lying on his stomach, and threatened him. If you make a move, I'm going to blow up your fucking kid. Back to business as usual, he led the woman to the family room, ordering her back to the floor, where he bound her ankles again. He returned to the bedroom to place dishes on the husband's back, threatening to kill him if he heard them move. This time he did something unique. He taunted the husband. He said, I'm going to rape your wife. Then he left the room, went out to the family room, and raped the woman. After he was done with her, she was bound so tightly again that it cut into her skin. Authorities arrived around 4 a.m. and discovered the usual scene in the aftermath of an air attack. He was described as a white male, 6 feet, in his 20s. There was not a reported weight estimate. The victim said she could smell beer, but nothing else. He was described as not having any flabbiness on his midsection. His clothing was dark-colored, and she assumed his gloves were made of plastic or rough leather, going strictly by feel. He spoke in a deep, low whisper, stuttering when he was angry. Based on his choice for language, he was assumed to be low education and possibly had a Mexican accent. While the suspect paced back and forth, he breathed heavily, possibly sobbing. Modesto was a new location for the year. Modesto is located around an hour south of Sacramento, 
Attack number 35, June 7, 1978, in the city of Davis on Wake Forest Drive. Two days after the attack in Modesto, the ear moved to the city of Davis, a college town 15 minutes from downtown Sacramento. It was around 3.30 a.m. that a 22-year-old UCD student was fast asleep when she was awakened by a hand clamping down over her mouth. A male voice whispered, Cooperate and you won't get hurt. The intruder warned her, Put your hands behind your back or I'll blow your brains out. The victim thought it was just her boyfriend joking around at first. The ear then pulled her arms behind her back and bound her wrists. Then he tied her ankles. He shoved a flathead screwdriver against her face near her eye and said to her, All I want is your food and your money. Don't move, or you'll never see any of your friends again. The assailant shoved a pair of her panties into her mouth as she was about to scream. The ear got up and began to rummage around her room, and she began to work her ankle bindings loose. He noticed and ripped the covers off of her and pulled her panties down around her legs. She began kicking her foot at him. Then he jumped on top of her and began punching her in the head and face. He grabbed her by the hair and hit her four more times in the face. Don't move. Don't scream. Or you won't see any of your friends again. And I mean any of your friends. He got off of the bed and rummaged again. He went into the kitchen and came back. Then he pressed a nail file firmly into her face, causing blood to flow. She screamed out. I told you to be quiet or I'll kill you. He got on her back and put his penis into her hands and told her, play with my dick. He got off of her and started to lubricate himself. The victim was sobbing, and he told her to shut up. He raped her again, and then left. The victim caught a glimpse of the intruder as he was rummaging her room prior to punching her. She noticed he was wearing a dark blue t-shirt, which was on inside out. He was also wearing light brown corduroy pants. His mask was a dark blue or black nylon stocking, and also had tennis shoes on. She actually got a glimpse of the intruder's fingers. He had very short fingernails. It was not known if it was from biting them so short or cutting them short. Another thing that was interesting to investigators was that he struck in an apartment. He had not hit an apartment yet, only duplexes, townhouses, and single-story homes. This is also the first time that he struck in Davis. The ear wore a nylon stocking again. This always seemed to occur when he parked near an apartment complex. Perhaps it was so he could wear a knit cap around and blend in, then pop on the nylon mask just before entering. Attack number 36, June 23rd, 1978, in the city of Modesto on Grand Prix. A male victim was asleep in his bed when he was awakened by his barking dog. Just as he started to check on the dog, a voice said, Shut the fucking dog up. The man noticed the ear with a dark ski mask pointing a gun at him. A flashlight beam shining right in his eyes. The man started to realize what was going on. The ear had told the man, Shut the fucking dog up. One flinch and I'll blow your fucking head off. The man picked up the dog and quieted him. The man's wife woke up asking what was going on. The intruder ordered the couple to roll over and get onto their stomachs. The assault continued as past assaults with little to no variation of his M.O. He stole a three fifty seven Magnum from the husband's nightstand as well as their wedding rings and was only in the home for 45 minutes. The real interesting thing that happened around this attack is that a cab driver phoned police to report that he may have driven the suspect to the crime scene the day before the attack. On the evening of June 22nd, the cab driver was sitting in front of the United Airlines terminal when he was approached by a man. The cab driver did not see the man come from the airport, nor was he aware of any plane landing. A strange man asked to be dropped off at Sylvan and Coffee. They arrived at a vacant field near the location. The passenger said, good enough, and left the cab. He was carrying a zipper-topped plaid bag, and then he walked in the general direction of where the assault would occur. There's a lot to unpack there, uh, trying to cover a few of these attacks at a time before we break for discussion, just in the for the sake of brevity. You know, what I noticed in a couple of these is there's no gun, uh, especially in that last one, and uh, or no gun challenge, I'm sorry. So 
in previous attacks, you know, he would know that there was a gun in the home and he would challenge the owner to go get the gun. So in this case, I'm wondering if he actually did enough prowling prior to entering this home because he ended up stealing that 357 Magnum. You know, did he know that the gun was there or did he just find it while he was rummaging through the room? It almost sounds like he just found it as he was rummaging, just the way that that read. Yeah, that's the impression I got while researching that particular attack. It seemed like he just kind of stumbled upon it, like he hadn't been in the home like he had in the past, or the gun was newly placed there from a time that maybe he had entered the home before, if he did get in there and scout in advance like he usually does. So yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. And then it was kind of implied through you know all of this obviously happening 40 years ago and all the analysis that I was reading on it. He may not have known these areas very well. So he had a lot of heat on him in Sacramento. And so he starts moving around a little bit. He moves south. So he heads to Davis. I think Davis is, I want to say it was like 15, 20 minutes away from Sacramento, if I remember correctly. So I apologize to those of you if my timing's off there. But he also heads to Modesto, and I think that that one was like an hour plus away. So, I, you know, he's starting to change his areas a little bit. So it seems like he's probably from the Sacramento area if you're just like looking at this objectively, because he's hitting Sacramento, he's hitting in weird places, like all around Sacramento. Seems like he knows the area well, doing a lot of stalking and prowling in advance. Then he comes down to to Davis and to Modesto, and these attacks seem to happen, you know, he doesn't stick around as long, you know, he's kind of in and out. Just seems like he doesn't do as much prowling as usual. Yeah, and it sounds, well, it sounds like he did enough prowling to know what house he wanted to hit because we called out a specific intersection there. But I, I agree. I don't think he knows the area as well. And it, to me, it sounds like he drove his car to the airport and parked it at the airport and then caught a cab there too. That way nobody could, you know, report seeing a mysterious car on their street parked, you know, where they wouldn't expect to see one. So he he parks at the airport, catches a cab to the somewhat close of a location to where he's going to attack and, you know, commences from there. The interesting thing would be, depending on how far the airport is from where he did attack. How did he get back? Did he just escape and run down the street, call a cab to go back to the airport? You know, that's that was my question about that whole thing. And also, I really questioned whether or not that actually was the ear, because I don't feel like he would engage a third party. I really don't. I don't think he would do anything like that to get himself involved in possibly being identified. He's all about self-preservation. He thinks, you know, three, four, five steps down the field, he's ahead of everyone. I highly doubt that he would go make himself known, go to the location near where that happened. You know what I mean? Like, it just seems far too strange. I think it just happened to be a strange coincidence that he managed, that that cab driver managed to drop someone off somewhat near that area. So I, I have a hard time believing that. In this case, that we have, you know, that that was the year. I really do. No, I, I agree. I don't think he would have wanted to give anybody a chance to draw another composite of him because there were so many floating around already as it was. So, yeah. And, you know, that cab driver got a perfectly good look at him. You're not going to be wearing your ski mask right. in the cab. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, whoever was with him would have, you know, easily been able to give a good composite sketch. Not that back in those times, not that that really ma- mattered as much, you know? I mean, it did matter, but. It would have been really hard to then pinpoint who that exactly. person was, you know, from that, especially if he didn't live in that area. You know, if he lives in Sacramento or up, you know, up near Sacramento somewhere and he's down in 
Davis or Modesto. Yeah, where there hasn't been that much activity as to date. And just starting in this area, there isn't that, probably isn't that heightened alert there would have been. Yeah, exactly. Attack number 37, June 24th, 1978, Davis, Rivendale. The ear now switching things up was alternating his attacks between Modesto and Davis. This night, it would be Davis's turn. It was 3.15 a.m. A couple, while sleeping in their bed, were awakened by an intruder aggressively whispering to them, Don't you fucking move. Don't you fucking move. A flashlight was beaming into their eyes. Put your hands behind your back and don't you fucking move or I'll shoot your fucking heads off. I have a three fifty-seven, and I'll shoot your fucking heads off. They were then forced onto their stomachs. Then he told them, don't move or I'll kill every person in the house. I'll kill every fucking person. I'll shoot you and splatter blood all over the walls. All I want is food and money. I got to have money for gas. I got to have food. Then he focused on the female and told her to bind up her husband, where two shoelaces were already laid out. After she bound her husband, she was then bound too. He spent a few minutes rummaging through the closets and ripping shoelaces out of the shoes. Then he retied the husband's hands and tied their ankles. The intruder then threatened the couple. Don't you say one fucking word or I'll kill everybody in this house. He pushed a muzzle of the gun into the victim's back. He asked the husband where the money is, to which the husband replied, in my pants. Then he asked the same to the victim. She responded, it's in the kitchen. There's $45 in it. Shut up, the intruder growled at her. The ear left the room for a moment, and the couple could hear whispering in the hallway, where he was actually talking to their 10-year-old son. He forced the boy into the bathroom and told him he better not say a word. The intruder shut the door and placed a cup over the doorknob so he could hear if he tried to open the door. The assailant returned to the bedroom where he threatened the couple. That kid better stay in the bathroom or I'm going to push this ice pick into your back. He better stay in the bathroom. I'll kill every person in this house. I'll shoot all your fucking heads off. All I want is your food and money. Then he left the room. The husband told the wife to do exactly as he says. The assailant returned. He was tearing towels and then blindfolded them. He told the woman to get on the floor. Then he cut her bindings on her ankles and walked her out to the living room. Following his typical M.O., once the woman was secured on the floor in the living room, he returned to the husband and placed dishes on his back, threatening him if they moved. The intruder returned to the woman. She could hear the lotion bottle pumping. He squatted over her backside. All I want is to feel good. You better make it feel good. She felt his penis in her bound hands. Then he rolled her over. You better not bite me or this knife will go six inches into your back. Then he raped her. He left and began sobbing again. Then he started rummaging the house again. He returned and raped her again. The intruder was in the home for about an hour. Investigators initially thought that this may not have been an ear attack. He attacked a two-story home. He called the victim by her nickname, which was not written down anywhere in the house. During the sexual assault, he fondled the woman's breasts, gently at first, then very hard. The victim was aware of the ear and tried to focus on the size of his penis during the attack. She described it as long with a small head. He was also described as a white male. His build was thin to average, with big thighs, and he had a hairy butt. The assailant had a three hundred fifty seven Magnum and an ice pick. A neighbor reportedly saw a man in the neighborhood around June 18th. He spoke to the witness about solar homes, saying that he worked for a developer and was interested in them. The neighborhood was made up of solar homes, which is why this conversation occurred. The witness felt that he knew nothing about solar homes after talking to him. That same neighbor found a jacket on her walkway by her gate. It was a navy blue and was a Golden Bear brand. It was either Model 300 or 303 and was for sale in just three Californian stores, one in Sacramento and two in San Francisco. The jacket was only on the market for less than two years and was discontinued due to poor sales. The sales records for the store, Bluebeards, which was located in Sacramento, had been lost due to fire. 
The store manager and salesman did not recall ever selling one. He also stole 17 rolls of pennies. The ear is now moving between Modesto and Davis quite frequently, moving away from Sacramento. And, you know, he's he's been striking, trying to stay away from where, you know, everyone was hot on his trails, which clearly is smart at this point. But then the interesting thing here, so we have the neighbor, she talks to the strange man, so who knows, that could have been him. But then after the attack the next morning, she finds this jacket in her yard, which is really bizarre. And I was reading about this a lot, and I'm just, I'm not convinced that's his jacket. And I'll tell you why. One of the things, you know, it said he stole 17 rolls of pennies. Do you know how much 17 rolls of pennies weighs? Eight pounds. <laughs> Where are you putting 17 rolls of pennies? The only thing I can think of is he does have that carry bag that some people say he takes with him. And I th- personally think that sometimes he leaves it outside somewhere or like in a garage or somewhere not necessarily near the victims where they don't always hear him going in and out of it. But I think a lot of times when he's going in and out of the house, either out into the patio or out into the garage, he's putting things in that bag. So possibly he did put stuff in that bag and that jacket, maybe it was his. I don't know, but I have a hard time believing it was for some reason. He definitely wasn't putting 17 rolls of pennies in his cargo pants, unless he had a really good belt. Well, we know he doesn't have a roll full of quarters in his pants, so, you know, who knows what he was doing with these pennies. he was making up for that that quarter roll with 17 penny rolls. No, I don't know. But yeah, I don't know about the jacket. I mean, it's weird that it was only sold in three stores in California, but that's not to say, even if it was his jacket, that he didn't pick it up at a, a thrift store. You know, somebody could have dropped it off to Goodwill and he could have picked it up for a couple bucks, right? Who knows? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he could have done that. It could have been coincidence. It could have been from someone else's home. <sighs> He being detached from the situation, they still couldn't find someone in that area that remembered even right. selling one of those jackets. So I don't know. It's tough to say. There's not a whole lot to go on there, but I just thought it was interesting. The big, you know, the big takeaway here is he's been alternating now between Modesto and Davis, which, you know, clearly he's staying away from Sacramento after the Maggiore double murder. Well, the only thing that really stuck out here was the victim profiled his nether regions, said it was long with a small head. So that goes against some of the other eyewitness reports where it's short with a big head it's big around as a roll of quarters i mean we've heard various descriptions and this was this was yet another variation of that so but i don't know i'm starting to think that there's a lot of credence to what we said where if you're being attacked some of those fine details i have to believe are lost you try to kind of recall what happened but the, the trauma of the situation i think dictates some of that memory they did do some of the hypnosis right, but you know how much how much credit can you put into that? I think they did the hypnosis of the one child and got the description from that, but you know we didn't really hear that they put anybody else under hypnosis during this investigation to this point anyways well, they do it frequently, you know, and a lot of times I don't necessarily write that in here just because it happens so commonly, kind of like his description, you know we keep getting very similar like dark ski mask five nine to five ten one sixty you know, early 20s to 30s, you know, that description repeats itself several times over in a lot of these cases. And, you know, I don't, for the sake of brevity, you know, I kind of don't add that into every single one of these as I'm writing up the narrative. But, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, they do hypnotize a lot of the the victims, but 
as he moves to new cities and jurisdictions, they don't necessarily do that right away until they talk to Sacramento and find out that Sac County's been doing that kind of stuff and the Sacramento County sheriffs have been doing that. So um, if they're not communicating, they may not go down that path right away just because they're not aware of, you know, the East Area Rapist, his MO, his patterns, you know, and, you know, they're not quite keyed in on the questions to ask. They haven't refined their process as much as Sacramento right. has. It's crazy. But like I said, you know, even under hypnosis or if it's just an eyewitness account that you're taking a report, how much of those fine details can you really remember, you know, for each thing that they're describing? I, I can't imagine it's easy to do. Yeah, I can't either. And you have to believe to some degree, the husband's account of what happens a lot of times is probably fairly detailed because they're stuck just listening. And so they probably actually have a pretty decent handle on what's going on because they're not being tortured and you know what I mean? As much as the wife is, or the woman, I should say. So, you know, the woman in that instance, I would completely understand her not remembering what the hell happened. And just because, you know, she's being tortured to your point, you know, and traumatized and all those things. And it might be hard to kind of remember every single little detail as it's happening to you. But that's why they hypnotize them, because they know that it's such a traumatic experience that there are details that at the time, right after, that they're not going to remember. And a lot of these women get ushered to the hospital pretty quickly after this for, you know, rape kit testing and those kinds of things. And it's, it's tough on the, these women, especially, you know, and, and their details might be a little bit off, but yeah, for good, exactly. good reason, right? Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs. So your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Liberty's leave policy was tremendous. Having the ability to take 16 weeks off, fully paid to bond with my child, was an incredible experience. At Liberty Mutual, you can find a career that supports you at every step, even baby steps. We offer up to 16 weeks parental leave for new moms and dads. And because not everyone's pathway to parenthood looks the same, we offer robust fertility, surrogacy, and adoption benefits too. Learn more at LibertyMutualCareers.com and pursue your tomorrow today. Attack number 38, July 6, 1978, Davis, Amador Avenue. It was closing in on 3 a.m. when a single mother, 32 years old, awoke to the all-too-familiar flashlight beaming in her eyes. Don't move or I'll blow your fucking head off. Do you see this gun? Don't move or I'll blow your fucking head off and blow up your kids. Then he ordered the woman to roll over onto her stomach and bound her. Knowing there were two kids in the home, he told her, I'm not going to hurt you. All I want is money and food for my van. Then she was blindfolded. The assault continued in the way of his usual routines. She was forced to the living room and subsequently placed face down on the floor. He straddled her, placing his penis in her bound hands. You know what this is? He would say to her. Then he would warn her that he would blow her head off in an angry whisper. He raped and sodomized her. 
then he was gone. The ear did a few unusual things during this assault. The ear moved around a lot during the sexual assault as if he was trying to reach climax but couldn't. He laid his head down next to the victim on a pillow and sobbed into it. He stated, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you, Bonnie. The victim wasn't sure if it was Bonnie or something else, but when pressed, she said it was likely the name Bonnie rather than Mommy, as others had been hearing. He also groped her breast during the attack. The victim noted that his penis was maybe three to four inches long, close to the diameter of a half dollar, and he was circumcised. The responding officers had found some of the rooms had been ransacked, but not all. Herringbone-style shoe prints were located in the kitchen near the sink, which matched what is usually seen. The big takeaway from this attack is Bonnie. Bonnie plays a huge role in this case. People have focused on the Bonnie comment for a long time because they started trying to research Bonnie and figure out who Bonnie might be if Bonnie actually happened. But again, he's so good at red herrings, nobody knows if he's truly like crying out for real? Is he faking it and playing up to the paranoid schizophrenic in the media? Like, what is he doing? He's so good at throwing so many misdirections out there that nobody can tell what's real and what's fake. So this one was just another uh, big piece of the puzzle here as far as evidence is concerned. We have a Bonnie now, which we believe is pretty certain that he says this, but nobody knows who Bonnie is or, or what this means. Yeah, and I actually just watched the part of the unmasking a killer documentary on headline news and we we won't give away who bonnie is just yet but she does play a very critical role in this storyline once we get to that point yeah absolutely she does and it's just it's one of those things that later we find out there's a lot of significance to bonnie but at the time they thought so they just couldn't do anything with it from those victims in previous attacks when they thought he was saying mommy it that's a very easy to them, it's, it kind of sounds like a Freudian slip. They think he's saying mommy, but I, I have a feeling each of those times he was saying Bonnie. Bonnie, why'd you make me do it? Bonnie, I, you know. Yeah, I, I thought about that when I was, excuse me, when I was researching this piece. And maybe in some instances you're right, but do you remember there was an attack where he tells the couple, my mom hates when this is in the news? I do remember that. So I feel like he uses both. Because that one, that one was harder, you know, that one, I believe they, they didn't screw that one up or confuse it. So I have to believe that he did both. Now, maybe sometimes when he's sobbing, they think he's saying mommy, he's saying Bonnie, but he definitely uses his mother as well. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. And that's true. In the context of what he said, then it was definitely, he was referring to his mother. Yeah. And then when he does his sobbing and people say they hear him saying mommy, then maybe he is saying Bonnie. It could be both. Uh, or one or the other, you know, it's just one of those things when I was thinking about it again, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, he's probably saying Bonnie every time. But then I was like, but no, then he threatened that couple with his, with mommy. <laughs> he doesn't like when his mommy sees us in the news. Yeah. Just weird, but a very important piece later on in the story. Attack number 39, October 7th, 1978, Concord, Balam Court. The ear was quiet since July. However, he wasn't just sitting on his hands. He had been prowling a new territory, an hour south of Sacramento in the city of Concord, which is located near the Bay Area of California. Around 11.30 p.m. on the night of October 7, 1978, a young couple in their late 20s arrived home. As they were approaching their home on Balam Court, they passed an unknown vehicle, possibly a Volkswagen, on Minert Road. Around 2.30 a.m., the couple was stirred awake by an intruder beaming a flashlight into their eyes. He hissed at them through clenched teeth. I just want food and money. I'll kill you 
if you don't do what I say. I just want food and money, he would say. His usual ruse. He told the couple to get onto their stomachs and place the gun against the husband's head. Put your hands behind your back. The typical scenario played out with the wife binding the husband with the pre-made shoelaces. Then the wife was bound, following the husband being bound tighter. If you look at me, I'll have to kill you, he said. The intruder began rummaging through the closet, pulling shoelaces from the shoes in the closet. The couple were trying to look over at him when he growled, Keep lying face down. If you look at me, I will kill you. I'll blow your fucking heads off. The ear got up and then bound the husband's ankles tightly. He began rummaging through the dresser and drawers and then demanded to know where his wallet was. On the bathroom counter, the husband said. The assailant went into the bathroom and got the wallet. Next, he put the gun to the female victim's head and asked where her purse was. It's in the kitchen, she stated. He retrieved the purse, returning moments later, asking if that was all the money they had. The assailant left the room again, returning with dishes. He placed them on both the male and female, threatening them. If I hear these, I'll blow your fucking heads off. Then he began rummaging the home again. He returned and cut the bindings off the ankles of the female. He ordered her to stand. Don't look at me or I'll cut your fucking head off, he growled. He forced her down the hallway by knife point. Then he forced her onto her stomach on the floor in the living room. He turned on the TV and placed a blanket over it. Then he returned to the husband. If I hear these dishes fall, I'll kill everyone in the house. Then he applied more dishes. My main man wants gold and silver, he said as he left the room. He returned to the woman lying on the floor and began cutting away at her nightgown. He warned her, if you don't give me a good fuck, I'll kill everyone. I'll cut your baby's ear and bring it to you. The couple had an infant child in the home at the time of the attack. The ear lubricated himself and straddled the victim. Leaning over, he whispered into her ear, I've been seeing you for a long time. Then he continued on to rape her several times. After he was done, he retreated to the corner of the room and began sobbing. He then got up and rummaged about the home, in and out of rooms, the garage, and back and forth to the patio. The victim was unsure when he finally left. The Concord police arrived to the scene at 4.40 a.m. The assailant had been estimated to have been gone for about 20 minutes. During their investigation, they found roughly $4,000 worth of goods were missing. During the neighborhood canvas, three days prior, on October 4th, a strange man was heard walking on aluminum panels that were laying on the ground in the backyard. He stuck his shotgun out his window and demanded the man state why he was there. I'm looking for a friend, was the reply. Then he was told to get out of his yard. The couple experienced a strange incident where a month earlier, a couple claiming to be from the Mormon church came to their house. There isn't much to report from that encounter. But the weird thing, the Mormons typically send out two males together on trips like this. In addition to these accounts, neighbors reported the usual prowling and suspicious cars, people, and phone calls. The phone calls turned out more to be obscene phone calls as opposed to the silent hang-ups. Up to this point, not much news was gleaned from the evidence except for an interesting find. A neighbor of the victims found a security officer's badge in their backyard. It had a state of California seal on it and was surrounded by the words, Special Officer. Investigators traced the badge and found that it was a Model B617. It was only sold directly from the company that produced it, and it had a wear pattern of someone who kept it in their wallet. Another neighbor reported that two nights before the attack, her and her husband could hear something outside around midnight. Her husband went downstairs, did a quick sweep, and saw nothing inside. So he went and stood outside looking around while, he, while she stayed up in her room. The wife heard a noise coming from the downstairs dining room door. She peeked outside and saw two people running through the garden, hop a fence, and take off into the night. Another event that was reported happened around 11.30 p.m. two weeks prior. A couple was watching TV when they heard a loud noise outside. Upon further investigation, they saw two men run from their home to a black or blue falcon with a loud exhaust. So let's unpack that a little bit. So the uh, the two men seen twice, I would chalk those up to just 
coincidental and unrelated. I, I can't imagine that he has an accomplice. I know he tries to pretend that he does sometimes. I, I would write those ones off. I feel like those people who had seen the two men twice that just happened to be two jack wagons in the neighborhood doing bad stuff. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't think that, I mean, he's still relatively new to the area. So, you know, how's he going to pick up an accomplice and start doing that? Unless he had an associate from another area, but I, I don't, I don't hold much, I don't hold much to that information. Yeah, I don't either. The other big takeaway was the badge. Okay, so a lot of people look at this badge as a big piece of evidence. Nothing ever really comes of it. They trace it. They do a lot of great detective work here, and they find out the company that makes it. You can either only buy it directly from the salesman, or you can buy it from the company direct. Nobody finds out anything about this badge other than that. That's all they know. And it's very strange that it's located there. It could have been picked up from someone else's home and then dropped in that yard. It could have just been there coincidentally. Somebody had dropped it a long time ago and just sat there. Who knows? But it was pretty interesting, you know, and and it is a big focus on this case, you know, for a long time. And it's just one of those things that is so strange, but no one can really do anything with it. You know, they do as much as they can. They trace it, but nothing ever comes of it. Why wouldn't it have had a badge number and assigned directly to a certain person? If it was a legitimate badge that was used for security type work, you would think it would be associated directly to one person. Yeah, you know, you'd think so. Or it's just one of those like mall cop badges or something, you know, or light security where you just <laughs> you get this badge just for the hell of it, you know, to make you look more official or something. One of those I gold star pens you get at Toys R Us that says police officer that your kid wears around. It's kind of what it sounds like. I mean, what's Toys R Us? I don't know. I don't know what that is. Oh no, it's it's no more. <laughs> Rest in peace, Toys R Us. <laughs> I know my my childhood died <laughs> recently. Sidebar for just a minute. So I was watching. My three year old is obsessed with the Home Alone movies, and he likes watching the part where the bad guys get like beat up and you know do the whole thing where they get trapped and all that stuff. He loves it. He makes me just fast forward to that part. And he likes to watch it. So we're watching uh, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, yesterday. And, you know, there's that toy store in that movie, Duncan's Toy Chest or whatever. So I'm looking at my wife and I said, do you think that store still exists? Like, is this a real store? What's the deal with this toy store? And because my kid keeps going, I want to go to that store. I want to go buy toys. And she's like, "Ah, I doubt it exists anymore. And I'm like, "Ah, I bet you it does. So I look it up. Turns out it's an F. OA or FAO Schwartz store in New York City. And it had been around for like 170 years, some ridiculously long amount of time. And then it closed in 2015. And it was right on, it was on Fifth Avenue. And then I said to her, I I found this article, it closed in 2015. She's like, see, I told you. I go, I guarantee you the store is open now. She's like, no way. I go, I bet you $100 is open now. So I go and check. Sure enough, December of 2017, they reopened a new location in Rockefeller Center because I think I'm guessing that they must have had some bad debt, had to close and reopen. You don't have a brand like that that's a strong, you know, 170 years in New York. Guarantee you they had a strong brand to be around that long in New York City specifically. I know they had a few other locations or whatever, but mostly New York and not come back, right? Like Toys R Us is coming back. You know they are. I, yeah, I think they will at some point too. It'll, it'll probably be under a different business model. I mean, the overhead of having that many retail locations spread across the country is just not—it's just not the way business works nowadays. So they—they, they, I think they'll be back. I think it'll just be, you know, a completely different business model. Probably 
along the same lines as maybe a smaller storefront in fewer locations. I don't know, dude. I think Toys R Us has such a good brand recognition and the fact that there are literally no toy stores anywhere anymore. I mean, rarely do you find a real good toy store like Toys R Us. I think they're going to come back in full force. I don't think that they'll have probably the number of locations like you're saying. They probably will trim the fat there or like get rid of the poorly performing locations. But I would be shocked if in the next, by 2020, we're not seeing Toys R Us stores back again. If anybody is listening that managed the Toys R Us stores or has any say in this whatsoever, when you reopen the stores, double the width of your aisles for Christ's sakes, because I went there when my son was younger and I got absolutely fed up with trying to work around all the people that would block every fucking aisle in the store. You could get nowhere. The aisle was as <laughs> wide as a cart. You go around, you try to come in on the other side and there's somebody new there. Or the same person stands in the same spot for 20 fucking minutes when you want to look at the same exact thing. So that's why I shop on Amazon. I don't like to go to the store because I don't like navigating my cart through the Toys R Us maze. This is Killer Podcast for Amazon.com. That's right. Jeff Bezos, (laughs) I hope you're listening. If you are, send us some money. We have a Patreon page and we need a shitload of money. No, I'm just kidding. No, I wouldn't complain. You can give us a shitload of money. I will take that gladly any day. Please just dump dump it in my backyard, please. For the love of all this holy Jeff Bezos, in all seriousness, go ahead and buy the Toys R Us name, fold it into the Amazon family, and call it a day. So I don't have to look at any more sweaty That's ass right. cracks blocking the toy aisle. <laughs> <laughs> the ass cracks are reserved for Walmart. They're, they're a Toys R Us exclusive. We're out about two weeks out from Christmas. <laughs> Attack number 40, October 13th, 1978, Concord, Ryan Court. A loud crash woke the couple sleeping in their bed when suddenly a beaming flashlight was shining in their eyes. Don't move or I'll blow your heads off. The female victim screamed. If you scream again, I'll kill you, the intruder snarled. The female victim's boyfriend jolted out of bed but was quickly met with a gun that was pointed at him. I don't want to hurt you. I just want food and money for my girlfriend and me, the intruder said. Then he instructed them to roll over and put their faces into their pillows and their hands behind their backs. The usual tying each other tactics took place. The ear then stuck the muzzle of the gun against the now-bound boyfriend's head. If either of you move, I'll blow your fucking heads off, he said to them. Suddenly, the trio was interrupted by the couple's young six-year-old daughter. She attempted to run to her mother, but was grabbed by the intruder. The six-year-old began screaming. The ear ordered the couple, tell her to shut up or I'll kill you. The woman told her daughter to quiet down. The ear took her to the bathroom and put her inside, telling her to be quiet, then took a dresser and placed it in front of the door. The ear returned to the bedroom and began rummaging in there. Then he approached the male and hit him in the head with his gun. All we want is your food and money. Then we'll get the hell out of here. He placed a blanket over the boyfriend's head and told him, If you move, I'll drive this knife into your back. Then he returned to rummaging about the room. Next, he wandered the house, rummaging through various rooms. Hearing rattling dishes, the ear was back in their room again. He placed the dishes on the boyfriend's back and warned him, If I hear these, I'll kill you. Then he untied the female victim's ankles and marched her to the living room. He left various times, rummaging about the home. He returned to the woman and said, Do you want to live? She said yes. He responded by saying, This better be the best fuck I've ever had or I'm going to kill you. He touched her a bit, then left for a moment. He returned with pre-cut towel and blindfolded her. He straddled over her back, placing his penis into her bound hands. Play with it, he ordered. He rolled her over onto her back and told her, This had better be good or I'm going to kill you all. Then he raped her. After he was done, he stood over her for a moment. Then he left for the garage. She could hear him carrying around a plastic garbage bag. Then he spoke to somebody. Here, put this in the car. She didn't hear anyone else reply or any footsteps or noise to indicate that someone was actually there. 
The house fell silent, and the only thing that could be heard was a six-year-old crying in the bathroom. When investigators arrived, they didn't find much besides the usual stuff. Neighbors reported they had seen prowlers, crank phone calls, all the usual things. One family reported hearing noises behind their home for two nights, but didn't report anything. When the cops were doing their canvas, they found their screen door had been pried, and a cut near the latch. The other was entirely removed, and their gate had been left open. They had also found fresh footprints. A nearby neighbor had their bicycle stolen and recovered a few days later in some bushes on nearby Ryan Road. Attack number 41, October 28, 1978. San Ramon, Montclair Place. A woman was awakened by a flashlight beam in her eyes. Don't say anything or I'll kill you, the shadowy figure said. Wake him up, he ordered. The woman then woke up her husband. The husband awoke, and the man said to him, Be quiet or I'll kill you, motherfucker. The assailant tossed bindings to the woman and ordered her to tie the man. As she was tying him, he leaned over to the husband and said, Don't move, motherfucker, or I'll kill you. The man was bound by his wife, and she was then bound as well, both on their stomachs now. I want your money, all your money. I know you have some. I'll kill you if you don't tell me where it is, the intruder said. The woman told the man she had $50 in her purse. She also told him where her purse was. He wasn't very thrilled to hear she only had $50. He left to retrieve the purse. He returned, and she told him that she had silver dollars. He demanded to know where they were. Then he began searching around the house. He came back again. This time, he forced the woman into the kitchen. He forced her to lie down on the floor. She was already naked, as she usually slept naked. She could feel him pacing around her. He said, don't move or I'll kill you. He repeated it several more times. Then he began messing with her by saying, I saw you by the lake. He continued on saying she always looked real good. He got hard every time he saw her. She asked him, what lake? His response was, whisper. Whisper, motherfucker. Then he blindfolded her with a strip of towel and began ransacking the home. He returned to the man in the room and stacked the dishes on his back, placing the muzzle of his gun against his head. If I hear these dishes rattle, I'll kill you. The female victim worked her blindfold down enough to see, and she saw the man coming back towards her. He had no pants on. He placed his penis near her mouth and said, suck on it and don't hurt me. You hurt me, and I'll kill you. The woman begged for a glass of water first. He got her one, but then threw it in her face, then stuck his penis in her mouth. He ejaculated on her face and mouth. Then he got up for a few moments, then came back and raped her. He mentioned that she had an unusual wedding ring. She told him to take it, but he couldn't get it off at first, but eventually he did. She told him an airport limo was coming to pick her up at 5.30 a.m. He left shortly after that. The investigators arrived shortly after, and the usual clues that it was an ear attack were found. They found the thermostat had been turned down to 63 degrees, which was something he would do to make sure the furnace or air conditioner wouldn't kick on during an attack so that he could hear, hear everything that was going on. He had entered the home through an unlocked garage door and left through the patio door. There were herringbone shoe prints found all over the yard, size 9.5. There were several reports of strange cars in the area, including a light-colored Toyota Celica that had pulled into their driveway the day of the assault. At 4.45 a.m., a witness was returning home on Pine Valley Road after an all-night party they said they saw a man hop a fence of an Adams Place home and then walk west on Pine Valley Road. It fit with the time that the ear may have left the premise. Another report of a Toyota Celica had been seen on October 26th at the entrance of Montclair Place. It left and returned about 10 minutes later. The driver was described as a white male, dark hair. The couple underwent hypnosis and gave a description of the suspect. White male, early 20s to early 30s, 5 foot 10 to 6 feet tall, had a medium build and a large upper body with a little extra weight on his stomach. He had dark hair, especially dark on his white, not muscular legs. He had a double chin and a short neck, but not like the neck of a football player. He had close set eyes and a small distinctive nose that did not fit his face. 
He had small, not full lips and a light olive complexion. He was described as unafraid and very sure of himself. In this attack, he cuts the phone line, so that means he probably parked close by. And one other interesting thing to note was that there was a mounting fear in the East Bay area, and a woman asked Sheriff Sergeant Layton at a town meeting if it was a good idea to struggle with the rapist, and Layton replied to her, I can tell you how to fight or how to submit, but not when to. And the woman said, we know how to submit. Tell us how to fight. Pretty crazy. So these, I mean, it's good on the women's part that they're wanting to fight back, but this guy is obviously sticking a gun in everybody's face. So to the police department's defense, you don't want to tell somebody to fight back when somebody's got a gun in your face, obviously. They don't want this to, they don't want this to go from a serial rapist to a serial murderer. Exactly, exactly. Attack number 42, November 4th, 1978, San Jose, Havenwood. The following attack occurred between 3.45 and 4.45 a.m. where a woman was sexually assaulted in her home. Records were not well kept in the case and probably long gone by now due to the statute of limitations. The victim was awakened by a man talking in her ear. Don't make a sound or I'll kill you. She started screaming. The intruder told her, shut up or I'll kill you. She began crying louder. Shut up. Shut up or I'll kill you. He pulled out a knife and placed it to her throat. See this knife? Don't you understand? She whimpered. All I want is money and food because I am hungry. He pushed her face down into the pillow and put the knife against her cheek. He told her, keep quiet or I'll cut your throat. Then he bound the woman and raped her. There's not much else to the story due to the poor record keeping. However, the attack occurred in a two-story home. He did not escort the woman to another location, as was his usual M.O. He was described as small in the male organ department. Attack number 43, December 3rd, 1978, in the city of San Jose, on Kesey Lane. A flashlight beaming in the eyes of the victims woke them up. There was a man standing at the foot of their bed. He was wearing a ski mask. The female screamed, Shut up or I'll kill you, he hissed at her. The husband woke up from the commotion, and he was met with a bright beam in his eyes. Don't look at me, he said to the man. The husband swung his feet out from the bed, but before he could stand up, the intruder whacked his legs with his gun a few times and said, Don't move, motherfucker. You try that again, motherfucker, and I'll shoot you. All I want is food and money, and I'll leave in my van. The husband then laid back down in their bed. He tossed bindings to the woman. Tie his hands behind his back tight, he ordered. He looked at the husband and told him, On your stomach, motherfucker. The female bound the male as usual. Then she was told to get on her stomach. He bound the female tightly around her wrist, but not as tight as on her ankles. He retied the man again, extremely tight. After everyone was bound and rebound to his liking, the ear growled at them. Don't move. Shut up and don't move, or I'll fucking shoot you both. He ransacked for a few moments and returned to the room stating, I only want money and food because I'm hungry. The wife told the man he could get food out of the refrigerator, and the husband told him all the money they have was in the hallway under the linen closet. They heard him leave and rummage through the hall closet. They thought that he was getting his money out, but... He was actually tearing strips of towels. He returned and gagged and blindfolded them with their freshly cut linens. The assailant cut the bindings from the female's ankles. She was startled, then pulled up by him. The husband could feel her leaving the bed and tried looking at her, although he was blindfolded. He looked over at him. Don't move, motherfucker, he hissed. The female was escorted to the living room by the perpetrator where he told her to get onto her stomach. He was rummaging through the kitchen and in the cupboards. He headed back to the master bedroom where he placed the dishes on the back of the husband. If these fall, I'll hear them. I'll kill you if I hear them fall, he growled at the husband. The intruder returned to the woman. He was standing over her. She could sense his presence. 
She heard him lubricating himself. I've been watching you for a long time, when he said her name. I've been wanting to fuck you for a long time. He straddled over her back and placed his penis into her bound hands. Play with it, he said. She felt that he was fully aroused, which was not always the case with the attacker. He lifted her up to a sitting position and hit her on the side of her head and knocked her down. He pulled her up again. You better not hurt it, he said through his clenched teeth, while pointing a knife to her neck. He pushed his penis into her face and said, You better make it feel nice or I'll cut your throat. Then he orally sodomized her. After a brief period of time, he lifted her nightgown and removed her underwear and then pressed the barrel of his gun against her head. If I hear you scream, I'll blow your brains out. Then he proceeded to rape her. It was a very short time, seconds, that he raped her until he got off of her and went into the kitchen. She could hear him crying deep sobs. You motherfucker. You motherfucker. You motherfucker, he cried. He went back to ransacking and stirring about the home. The victim knew the house had been quiet for some time and began to work her ankle bindings loose. Then she was pushed to the ground. Lie still or I'll kill you, he threatened. A loud crash was heard coming from the hallway. The husband had shook his dishes off of his back. That's when he heard the loud thudding of footsteps sprinting down the hallway. The ear entered the bedroom and growled. Just try that again, motherfucker. I'll shoot your wife first, then you. Then he stacked the dishes again. The female victim began shaking out on the living room floor as she heard him approaching again. She was subsequently raped. A repeat of earlier events. The ear was in the kitchen, pacing around, sobbing. She could hear him wandering the home again, as if he was doing a final sweep of the place, making sure nothing was left behind. The house fell silent. The female victim waited for some time. Then she made another attempt to free herself. They were able to finally get free. When authorities arrived, they transferred the female to the hospital for a rape exam, just like many of the others. Investigators found that the rapist stole $70, a six-pack of Coors beer, the husband's gold wedding ring, and a General Electric digital clock. The home had been ransacked, towel strips, lubricant, shoelaces, and an empty box of Nabisco crackers on the counter. Attack number 44, December 9, 1978 in the city of Danville, on Liberta Court. A Danville woman was asleep in bed when a man straddled her back and pushed her face into the pillow. Don't scream. Don't make any noise. I won't hurt you. A sharp object was pushed into her back. All I want is money and food for my van. Put your hands behind your back. You make a sound, I'll kill you, the man said. He tied her wrists together, and he tied her ankles together after that. He asked her where the money is. She told him it was in her purse located on the kitchen counter. The intruder started lubricating himself. He untied her ankles and pulled off her panties and lifted up her shirt. Do you like to fuck? He said her name there. He asks. She said no. Then he asks her, do you like to raise dicks? She again says no. He responds asking, then why do you raise mine every time I see you? Then he raped her. He wandered the home, then raped her again. The victim didn't feel like he actually knew her. She theorized that he got in her name from the license in her purse. When authorities arrived, they discovered the home was freezing cold. It had, been very, it had been a very cold night. It was just 32 degrees in California that evening. The victim's heat had been turned off. She had also been listening to music at a low volume, and that had been turned off as well. The victim had been preparing to move, so there wasn't much left around the home. A lot of sealed boxes and furniture. Nothing was opened. At the crime scene, investigators discovered the woman's underwear stained with blood, shoelaces which were knotted, and a comforter. The phone line had been cut this time, indicating he needed to escape further away. A bloodhound was sent to the scene to track the ear's escape route. The bloodhounds tracked him pretty far away, along railroad tracks on a dirt path. The investigators found her driver's license had been stolen, two rings were gone, as well as an antique stick pen and pendants from a jewelry box. One of the rings was found near the stereo that had been unplugged by the ear. She also had a small globe lamp near the bed, where they found a fingerprint. This was the only time a fingerprint had ever been found.
It was also checked against anyone who she knew that would have had contact with that lamp, but nothing ever came of it. Back to the tracking dogs for a moment. Where the tracking dogs stopped and lost the scent, a criminologist picked up some papers that had been lying there, about where they think the ear had parked his car that night. There were three pages, possibly his, possibly planted, or possibly random. What they found was evidence now referred to as the homework. The homework was made up of an essay of General George Custer and a two-page poem or journal called Mad is the Word. Finally, there's a map of a neighborhood, and on the back of it, the word, not very legibly written, was punishment. The following essay is Mad is the Word. Mad is the word that reminds me of sixth grade. I hated that year. I wish I had known what was going to be going on during my sixth grade year. The last and worst years of elementary school. Mad is the word that remains in my head about my dreadful year as a sixth grader. My madness was one that was caused by disappointments that hurt me very much. Disappointments from my teachers, such as field trips that were planned and then canceled. My sixth grade teacher gave me a lot of disappointments that made me very mad and made me built a state of hatred in my heart. No one ever let me down that hard before. I never hated anyone as much as I did him. Disappointment wasn't the only reason that made me mad in my sixth grade class. Another was getting in trouble at school, especially talking. That's what really bugged me, was writing sentences. Those awful sentences that my teacher made me write. Hours and hours, I'd sit and write 50, 100, 150 sentences a day and night. I write those dreadful paragraphs which embarrassed me. And more important, it made me ashamed of myself, which in turn, deep down inside, made me realize that writing sentences wasn't fair. It wasn't fair to make me suffer like that. It just wasn't fair to make me sit and write until my bones ached, until my hand felt horrid pain it had ever had. And as I wrote, I got madder and madder until I cried. I cried because I was ashamed. I cried because I was disgusted. I cried because I was mad, and I cried for myself. Kid, who kept on having to write those damn sentences, my angriness for my sixth grade will scar my memory for life, and I will be ashamed of my sixth grade year forever. Join us next week as we break down Mad is the Word and other information gleaned from the homework. Stay safe.